We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. If you are stuck with a personal problem or your relationship with your partner is in a rut going through the same old arguments, I have an unusual suggestion for you. You can run or, if you prefer, walk your way to a happier and more meaningful life. My witness is William Pullen, who is a London-based psychotherapist and the author of Run for Your Life, Mindful Running for a Happy Life. How did you discover the link between movement and psychological health, William? Good morning, Andrew. I suppose we're going back about 12, no, we're going back 15 years. And I was having a bit of a meltdown in my life at that time. I took up therapy. And I realized that if I was going to get out of the rut that I was in, which a lot of it, it was, it was more than depression, but it had a lot of what looked like depression. So I was kind of housebound and had very low, low levels of energy and wanted to hide away. And I knew that I needed to get out. And so I knew that anything that got me moving would be good. And so I took up running then with a friend very, very slowly. Somebody else who it turned out was going through a difficult time. They were in the early stages of a divorce. And I coupled the two. They happened in tandem, I suppose, by design, therapy and running. And then as I ran with my friend, he talked about his problems, I talked about my problems. What I discovered was that actually it was easier to talk to him while running than it was to talk to my therapist. (laughs) Yeah. I'm in therapy as well. And um, my therapist has been at it for a very long time and in Germany where they have different things. But when he did young people's therapy many years ago, they actually used to go out and, you know, you would go and play tennis or they'd go for a walk together. And, you know, he stopped doing that because, you know, he just ran out of energy and he just needed to have old people like me sitting down opposite. But, you know, that the idea of movement and processing, why do you think those two things work so well together? Well, let's stay with the focus on the processing element, because I think the movement and the processing, because there's a reason that the the movement works in other respects. But in terms of processing, I've given this a lot of thought over the years. I wrote a book about running therapy, and so I got into some of the science about it as well. And I never really came up with an answer. I guess maybe if you're a neuroscientist, you'd have a better idea. But fundamentally, I would say there's something very creative about running. There's something, you know, for anybody who runs. Are you a runner? No, no. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a walker. I have a dog. And in fact, between dogs, when one dog died and I wasn't ready to get another one, I thought, well, instead of going out for a morning walk, I'd go for a run. And you don't see as much as you do when you're walking, running. So I just felt, for me... I process much better on a walk rather than a run. And my understanding is, you know, if, if it's on a bicycle or it's walking, it's the same sort of kind of process as running. Or do you feel that there's something very different between running, cycling and walking? I think there's a big difference between walking and running, yes. I mean, I've, I've just come back from a walk this morning on this crispy morning. The reason I asked you if you were a runner is lots of runners have said to me the same thing, which is, is that you can get up of a morning find yourself overwhelmed by some consideration, something that you're thinking about a lot. You don't know where to begin, where to begin at it and where to start and fix it. How to, Nothing. The whole thing is like overwhelming. And you go for a run and you don't think about it once. And this is where I would say walking is different because you probably, when you talk about processing when you're walking, you're probably talking about thinking your way through it or feeling your way through it, but you're up in your head considering it. Whereas when you, when you run, what tends to happen, or the, the thing I'm talking about is when you go for a run, having thought these things before, you do not think about them when you run. And then when you stop running, you are in possession of the answer in your hand. 
somehow something changes along that run, even though you didn't process it consciously. And my answer to your question about what I think happens there is I think there's something about us being sort of hunter-gatherer types. I think that the brain works when we're moving. And I think it works while we're walking, but just more slowly. When we're running, you can switch everything off and it just takes over. And at the end of it, you become the man that got from A to B. And when you're when you've changed into the doing man, right? Because before you set out, you were the contemplating man. You were static, contemplating and not contemplating very well. There was just a sort of soup of ideas going around as you're, in your head as you tried to work your way through this. But somehow I think going for a run, it becomes more linear and you plow your way through it. And then at the end, you, the man that, that is now a doer, has done the processing you've changed your way of looking at things, your way of being in the world. And now when you consider it again, as this man who is now a doer, the answer is there. In other words, it was always there, but you were too caught up in contemplation before. I actually would say I have exactly the same thing that you're talking about when I'm walking. You know, I will go out with the dog after breakfast, out with the dog. And so you're supervising the dog. There's an issue that you're going to have, you know, how am I going to breakthrough on this particular topic that I'm currently writing about. I try and write a daily haiku. And then suddenly, while I'm walking into my brain, because my sort of brain is offline, will drop the answer to. So for example, I came back this morning and I'd solved how I was going to write today's haiku. Sometimes it's going to be that I'm writing an article. And how am I going to get into that article? And suddenly, I get dropped into it, the answer on that walk that, you know, somehow as a writer, the most important thing I possess is a dog. Because when I'm out with the dog, those unconscious ideas just sort of well up because my brain is offline. And that sort of allows from my unconscious the answers to come or the muses send them or something happens for me when I'm walking. So yeah, we are talking about something very similar. But um, the somehow it's not thinking about it. It's actually focusing on something else that's requiring part of our brain, but not all of our brain. Yeah. Do you think there's a link with the footfall, this, this idea of movement, it's this, the sense of progress and the sense of doing creates momentum in your head, processing through, maybe processing down into or overtaking that part of your brain that's blocking allowing the unconscious to come up. How do you understand it? Well, I think there's something that's sort of very linked between heart rate and walking rate. As, you know, as long as you're walking at a fairly brisk sort of kind of rate, you're not sort of dawdling, you're covering ground, so to speak. I find that somehow that is sort of quite meditative almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how did this actually get from just an idea that you were having into dynamic running therapy? Well, I guess I was running with this chap for about a year in therapy simultaneously. And then like so many people in therapy or so many therapists, I think it's a common route for therapists, people who become therapists as they were in therapy themselves found it very rewarding and then decided to train as a therapist. And so that's the route I took. And this entire time I was training, and that takes something, you know, depending on how you measure it, as long as seven years, six, seven years, if you include all of the placements that you do in hospitals and whatnot. And during that entire time, I was thinking to myself, what can I, what, this is still working for me so amazing. I'm still running with my friends. I still find myself talking about stuff it feels so collaborative, it feels so easy, and it feels so productive. I wonder if I could turn this into a kind of therapy. And so I started doing sort of practice sessions with my friends. And I said, look, how would it be, you know, this is what it would look like, and do you mind if we try this out? And, you know, and from there, I sort of developed a kind of idea of how I would want it to work. And then I slapped a name on it. I mean, it's essentially just normal therapy on the move. It's not like I reinvented therapy. I'm not Freud or something. All I did was take <laughs> therapy and, and run with it, so to speak. So 
I mean, I when I'm running, I'm pretty breathless. You know, how do you actually have a conversation with uh, people? That's a good question. So uh, the average session, my sessions are 50 minutes long, like most people. And most people just, it's very much client-led. That's really, really, really important. Every client understands that every session, every minute of every session is for them to decide what sort of movement. I'm following them. So if they want to run, which they never do, the entire 50 minutes, I'm in good enough shape that I can run and talk. But basically, they set their own level of comfort. And if they're struggling to speak while running, some things come out better when you're running. You know, again, this is one of the things that's fantastic about running therapy. It's a great way to get in touch with things like anger or sadness. Because when you're pushing yourself, the strain of it, while also talking about something emotional, they start piggybacking off each other. And you can find yourself very angry very, very quickly or very sad very, very quickly. It's a great way to access on an emotional level. When I was sort of researching this, I suddenly thought, wow, because you say that running actually gets into three things that actually is really important in therapy. And those are patience, silence, and space. Now, why are those two things important in therapy? And how do you get them in running? Particularly in the city, you know, so many of my clients are, are young professionals who are struggling with basically striving. You know, the city tests them and they're here and they're amongst a lot of other people fighting for resources, fighting for status. It's pretty tough stuff. Having patience with yourself and the process, learning to breathe and slow down and just realize that you can't have it all today. And there will be times when you're just not going to be on top of things and not to panic at those times and that it's, you know, life is a marathon, it's not a race. So that's what I mean by patience. In the same way, when you're training to run, we talk about running, run the mile that you're in. That's a, that's a great running saying, which I like, which is the same sort of thing about patience. It's to say, if you think about the big picture too much, think about the whole race, you'll kill yourself. If you think about your whole life and, and whether, you're gonna, whether you're getting there or not, just worry about right now. Decide right now, am I okay now? Is this good enough right now? Can I survive this? Can I get through this? The next moment will take care of itself and the one after that and the one after that. So that's where patience comes into it. Silence, of course, is one of the beauties of running is, is, is being out in nature and, and in therapy. As you know, we talk a lot about silence in between the, the silence. That's it. While you're into haiku, what's the name of that Japanese word for the silence between words? I'm afraid to say I don't know the answer to that, <laughs> but I think you're right. I mean, that silence has many, many different qualities to it. In our society, it's sort of almost taboo silence. And there's a wonderful yeah. moment in therapy when there's sort of silence and you can feel your client is about to say something profound. And we need that silence to let this stuff come up. And the the more silence sometimes, the more profound what's going to come up is. And we don't allow ourselves silence. You know, we've, we've got to have a, a soundtrack to it. We've got to listen to, you know, something to help us pound the streets. But actually, yeah. silence is very important. Absolutely. And I like the way with a client, silence it evolves doesn't it perhaps when you're first with them silence is more difficult and you can feel how in time both of you end up being more comfortable with the silence that you share and that's a wonderful feeling that's that's in a way you can yeah you get a real sense of the comfort of the client that you've created the right space for them or a comfortable space for them they can let go that it's not an anxious silence and I think the space in running is the fact you've allowed time out of your day, or for me, walking the dog, you've allowed time out of your day just for nothing. And in that nothing, that space, sometimes you get a profound thought, sometimes you don't. I don't get a haiku every day. It's okay if I don't, and it's brilliant if I do, so that you've just got that space and I don't think we have enough space today. What, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I, I think there are so many runners today who have got all the kit, who are essentially racing. They're not joggers anymore. 
there are a lot less joggers and a lot more runners. And I, and I think the proper runners, people who are looking at their times, always trying to improve their times, training towards a half or a whole marathon, these people are not providing themselves the same kind of space that you're describing, where it's literally a bit like a walk or, or a nice jog where you're literally just out there, you know, taking it easy in quite a, a mindful way. I'm big into mindful walking and mindful running. And that's very, very different. You would never set yourself times for that. So explain what you mean by mindful exercise. Well, mindfulness, as you know, is, is sort of disengaging the mind as much as possible, relocating your sort of focus on, on the here and now, the body. It's a sort of exchanging a cognitive experience for a bodily lived experience. So every time we catch ourselves reflecting on the past or the future, any kind of concerns that are not immediate, and we do that by grounding ourselves in typically in our body or through our senses. So whether you're walking or running, you're going to, you might choose to, if you're running, I quite often choose to count my footfalls, count trees, I count breaths. If you're doing mindfulness meditation, you count breaths. I mean, if you're doing a mindful walk, you can actually focus on your heel going onto the yeah. ground and then your sole, the rest of your sole, your toes going down and then with the other foot and maybe doing a mantra at the same time. Tishnat Han has a couple of good walking meditation um, ideas for mantras. Yeah, well, the crunch. I love the sound of crunch and a gravel. Mm. Just listening to your feet, listening to the noise your feet make. It really helps you to slow down just... My, it drives my sister insane. You know, she's very much one of these English people that, you know, a good walk, let's get out there and charge our way around for a solid, you know, six miles with the dogs, scream at the dogs, come back and, you know, get more stuff done. And I'm like, absolutely not. Let's cut the speed in half and let's amble. She's like, I can't amble. I said, well, that's what you need to learn how to amble. I used to charge like she did. My father was a great charger. I'm overcharging. I have no interest in charging around anywhere. I like to look up. I like to look at buildings. I like to look down at plants, trees, whatever. Because one of the things that you write, which I thought was really interesting, is the way you run actually probably reflects the way you approach life. Yes, very much so. Watching my clients and the way they choose to run, watching their, their gait, I feel, tells me an awful lot. It tells me in the moment because obviously I've got a relationship with them. I know how they normally run. And if they start talking about something emotional, quite often their running will change. Or I'll even encourage them to run into their anger or whatever it is. But that's different. We were talking about gait. And yes, I think that you see in people, if you look at people walking down the street, which I love to do, uh, you'll see the people who are leaning forward, the people who are leaning back, the people who bounce. There's a reason. I genuinely believe there's a reason. The way you walk tells you everything you need to know about somebody's attitude towards life. It tells you about where they've been, how they feel about where they've been and what it means to them today. And can you change your attitude to life through how you walk? I think so. You know, again, slow down. That's what I do. My sister refuses to slow down. And as a consequence, she remains rather an anxious person. So if you're a frightened or somebody who's dealing with shame, how could you correct that a little bit by walking slightly differently or running differently? Yeah, I mean, maybe you need to take up running or maybe you need to walk more. Maybe it's not how you do it, but that you do more or less of it. But it, it depends how it manifests itself in, in you in particular, because it may be different for you than other people. But you definitely try mixing things up. If you're a bouncer, try not to bounce. That's mm -hmm. a different, you know, that's an interesting one, bouncing. I always think that's people who are sort of up in the sky, up in their heads, up in their minds. They need to just learn how to plant their feet firmly on the ground. I would say to them, go and lie on your back in the park. Let the earth take the weight of you. Feel, feel the earth holding you. That's beautiful. And one of your suggestions is that you ask a question to yourself before you go running. So tell me about that idea, because I think that's a really brilliant idea that we could all actually do on a regular basis. So 
tell me about asking a question to the run, so to speak. Yeah, so well, you and I were just discussing how running, walking helps you process your way through questions that you've got about maybe it's a work thing, maybe it's your relationship, maybe it's some existential question about life in general. So I think that there's an opportunity there to get a bit deeper into whatever it may be that you want to know about. You know, quite often we forget to ask ourselves or forget to look into things more deeply because we don't think that we have a way to really work our way through them. Well, this really is a great way. This is a great opportunity. And so, yeah, I say to people, you know, if you're setting out off on a walk or a run, just for a moment, and you remember how we were talking about how you don't actually crunch through it with your mind when you're moving. Instead, you just somehow you've set it up and it's there. And that's what you're trying to do is you're just trying to think of this question. And if you're lucky, you think of it in such a way that at the end of the walk or run, you're somehow closer to the answer. I see a sort of a link between this and dream incubation. Have you ever heard of dream incubation where you ask your dream a question? Okay. So before you go to sleep, you know, you ask, how can I be more mindful tomorrow, for example, might be, a, uh, or how could I be more mindful in general, yeah. might be the sort of question you would ask. And then hopefully you'll have a dream that will actually answer that. If people are interested, I do have a podcast on this very subject called Ask Your Dream for help, I think, is the name of it. Uh, Michael de Clark is the therapist. And you could actually ask the run, the exercise, the question. But I think it's very important that you format the question in the right kind of way. So um, how do you format that question so it's one that the run could possibly answer? Well, that sounds like something you maybe know more about. You tell me what, what do you advise or what does the literature say around uh, dream formatting? Well, first and foremost, you've got to make it not a yes-no sort of kind of question, you know, should I take this job or not? A better version would be, what would my life look like if I took this job? Would be a good question to ask a dream. And I think the other thing is to actually only ask one question. I don't know if you find with your clients, they sometimes ask themselves three questions at the same time, or certainly partners, they'll ask each other three questions. And, you know, let's have just one question at a time. So that is very important. Because if you ask two questions, you're never going to know what the answer is going to be for of those two questions. And of course, there's always tomorrow, you can always ask the second question tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with the importance of not asking yes, no's. For me, it's such a sort of nebulous, strange business that in my head, the way that it's a bit like getting a, an embryo to connect onto a placenta or whatever, mm -hmm. onto a womb wall or something, you've got to get the idea to connect into you in some way. And in my head, it's never been so much about formulating the question correctly as welcoming the emotional content allowing the emotional content. So getting in touch with the emotional dilemma and then being open to the answers that may come forth. Give me a sort of a practical example of this in on the ground, so to speak. Well, I don't, it's not about a question. I think it's more about a subject. So you're just saying that I want to, I just want to think about work or I want to think about my relationship or whatever it may be. And typically it it tends to be something specific. So if it's your relationship, it'll be about whether, you know, you stay with your partner or whether you can forgive them for whatever they did or didn't do. And normally there's kind of the emotional content comes with that, right? Because the minute we start thinking about it up here, there comes the emotional haunting feeling of the, the dread and the pain of the distrust you've been through, whatever. And that's now that's in you. And you've set it up nicely, whether it remains in you, whether you get that payoff at the end, when you complete your run and you just go, oh, God, you know, actually, I feel like I, there is a way for me to forgive my partner. I just did somehow forgive them a little bit during this run. And if you feel still stuck, what does that tell you? 
just that it's going to take longer and you know potentially you may never forgive them or you if you want to work harder at it if you've got the the energy that you may have to find some other way you may have to go into therapy you may might need to talk to them about it you may do couples therapy whatever it is it may be that running with this particular subject is not going to work for you I don't know. I think the idea of running on the theme of forgiveness or anger or and being more conscious of the emotions, that sort of feels really good because you've actually got somewhere to take those feelings rather than them just coursing through your body unconsciously almost. So, you know, I, I'm with you on this. I'm just sort of trying to understand how the running helps move it through somehow. Yeah, it's interesting running in anger. I would say definitely if you've got somebody you're running with and you can express that anger, that can definitely help you offload some. I would say that if you're running by yourself and you've set this question up and it's something about the anger that you're feeling and the frustration you're feeling, if it's happening on a conscious level for you during that run, in other words, if you're getting into the anger but you're not getting to scream at somebody about it, I'm not sure that actually does you any good. If you haven't thought about it, and at the end you suddenly feel a lot calmer, which you typically do when you run, uh, any of your listeners, I would suggest if any of them have got you know, stress in their lives or anger or, or sadness or just about anything, just go for take up a running practice. There's things, you know, there are apps like Couch to 5K start you off incredibly slowly. Even the the most unfit, oldest, out-of-shape people can do it. And it will be the best thing you ever did. It is emotionally transformative in so many different ways. And you talk about moving with intent. What do you mean by moving with intent? I think that's sort of what mindfulness is about, is about decluttering the mind. And when one's mindful, one's really intentional, I think. I, I don't know. I think being intentional is really about being conscious because to be intentional may be to intend to do nothing, but you're being one with the person that wants to do nothing. You haven't disconnected from yourself. You haven't given up on yourself. You haven't distracted yourself. You have decided. So it's all about, it. for me, everything. And, and when you move with intention, you're moving mindfully. It's like picking up that kettle in the morning when you make your cup of tea. There's a way of doing it where you don't even think about it. And there's a way where you actually, you pick it up and you think, well, where on the handle shall I grab the kettle? Lower down? Up? We all know if you grab it at the very bottom, that tends to be less comfortable at the very top, less comfortable. But how much effort do you make to really find that sweet spot where the kettle balances itself? You know, making your bed, all these things, all of them can be done intentionally and with pleasure and thoughtfully. Or you can just fly through life and try and get as much done and be done with that kind of thing. And in which case, I think you've made a mistake because I think that the joys of life are just, you know, when <laughs> maybe it's just me. It's a very Japanese thing to go back to our Japanese theme. But when you're laying a table, for instance, it's the, it's there's a great deal of satisfaction in just slowing down and getting those knives and forks absolutely parallel. It's the sort of difference between being in the eternal now and rushing through life, trying to get to some unspecified time in the future. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about this, but I think that as you get older, you notice the way that you interact with the world, that time, time changes who you are, time, how much time you've got left changes. And you, you pace yourself differently. And there's an opportunity as you get older not to rush. And there's, I feel like it's really important to slow down and enjoy things just for what they are. Because if you don't do it, then when are you ever going to do it? So how do you think your running has changed you and how has your running changed over time? I would say that I, I really don't need, you know, I was one of those runners that you, I was just describing before somebody always trying to get better times. That was really important to me, the training aspect. There's less of that these days. I enjoy it more just as, uh, as an excursion, like you were talking about. That's definitely changed in that way. And after the exercise, you stress the taking note. And I, I'd like to find out more about that because that sounds really important. That's very much to do with... If you're doing my book, 
There's stuff in there for taking notes. If you download my app, there's stuff in there for, for taking notes. It's about that reflective moment, but that's going through dynamic running therapy. You know, it raises your awareness about the journey that you're on. You know, quite often we don't even realize when we're, when or how we're doing better if we don't make a note of it. And so that's what that's about. Another thing you do that interested me was the idea of empathy runs for children. Tell me about those. We've just been talking about the value of running. For me, an empathy run is the way I've constructed them is you get two people, or it could be a walk. You get two people and you take it in turns. It sounds really simple. If people want to hear more about it, there's a TEDx talk I did on YouTube. You can watch me go on about this and talk about how it works and how to make it work. But essentially, it's two people standing by, walking or running side by side. And one person goes first and talks about whatever they want to talk about, uninterrupted for 10 minutes or more. And then the other person gets their turn, the same amount of time, also uninterrupted. And it sounds really simple and basic, but actually it's incredibly profound. There's something about being uninterrupted and moving at the same time. Well, your question was specifically about children. What I'm trying to do is roll this out into schools so that children will have a half an hour lesson or something, and the children will go for a walk. They'll pair up the different pairings every time. In their case, they'll be given a subject to talk about. The idea is that you're uninterrupted and you get to muse. That's the idea. And you can actually be silent as well in those 10 minutes. You don't have to talk all the time. And then the concern is that the other person will chip in into the silence. It gives you a chance to sort of think about what you're saying. And then suddenly you'll drop down another level because silence is sort of okay when you're running or walking or doing some other kind of exercise. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And and I do say that, you know, do, for God's sake, don't jump in with your analysis. Give them the full 10 minutes of silence. They don't need your encouragement. You're not there to encourage them. You're not there to comfort them. You're just there to create a moment of community with them. That's enough. You know, just being there is enough. Let them have the space. Are you allowed to comment on the other person's 10 minutes or is your 10 minutes entirely detached? What are the rules? No, the rules are you do not. At the end of the 10 minutes, you acknowledge what the person said. You said, God, you know, that was really interesting hearing about X, Y, or Z. And that's it. Just enough to acknowledge that you've listened to it. And then you go and you have your 10 minutes and you use them however you want to. It's not 10 minutes refuting what you've just heard, for example. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And you can um and ah, you know, you can go wow, whatever you want. You know, you can do that stuff, but no words. That sounds a wonderful sort of thing to do with your children or your partner as well as in schools. Well, you know, you were telling me that you're a couples therapist. I trained as an Imago couples therapist. You know, that has a structure you're asking the person, is there more, is there more, is there more? Yeah, I use that idea. I call it reflective listening. I have a video on my website if you'd like to see it. It's basically the same kind of idea. Yeah. But on that one, you do get the point. After you've listened, you get a chance to respond to what has been said. But this is much more what I would call a heart circle idea where somebody speaks from the heart, you listen from the heart, and actually, you know, if you don't actually respond to what they've been saying. If if there is the theme, you know, this is generally not done with people you're in a relationship with, they would be perhaps talking about their mother, and now you wouldn't be offering any advice, giving cross-talk. But if it brought up stuff about your mother, then you would say, you know, I was really interested and moved by what you said about your mother. It reminds me of this story about my mother, mm. for example. So you're allowed to respond in in that kind of way. But I think actually if you're doing it with your partner or your children, I think the fact that you don't respond at all beyond, I hear that you're having trouble at school at the moment, I hear that you don't like one of your teachers and that you're really enjoying the latest series of X, and then actually you doing about your stuff sort of feels almost revolutionary rather than actually then starting to talk about problems at school and whatever. It's just 
they're allowed to have those feelings mm. and they're allowed to express them and they just sort of sit there and then you share some of the stuff from you. And I think particularly with couples, that would be really good. And I think it would probably change a little bit the relationship with your children. So it's not a sort of problem-solving sort of kind of relationship. You're actually saying... It might be that you can actually handle some of this stuff yourself rather than here I am leaping in to give you advice on on school and whatever. Because sometimes when you've got that bit of space, you know, the answers to some of this come up yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I love that idea of empathetic walking or running with your children and with your partner. Well, you know, I'm not going to go into all the different ways that it's beneficial, But one of the major ones is that you're not facing off. You're side by side and you're moving together. So there's a sense of you don't have the power dynamics, you don't have, or you've less of the power dynamics. Men particularly worry. It's harder for men to sit facing each other in therapy. You know, it's harder for us to be comfortably vulnerable. So that's easier. And it's the same way with children. Children don't like to be challenged. They find it very off-putting. So any parent will tell you that if you ever want to have a good chat with your kid, do it in the car, but also do it while walking. The fact that you're both walking somehow and you can kick some leaves and the silence is okay because you're doing something, it makes them opening up much, much easier for them than if you sit there and say, why did you do this? Or (laughs) they're just like, oh my God, what? What's happening here? Could you shine that light just a little bit brighter into my eyes, please? (laughs) Yes. Yes. We have ways of making you talk. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the ways that you can get involved in the program, and you can do that by going to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. You can sign up for my newsletter uh, that comes out twice a week with interesting articles, information about The Meaningful Life, and a way of you giving feedback. You can also send us a letter for me to discuss with one of my witnesses. And this is the one that I've got. It's from a man. I'm worried about my relationship with my phone. First thing in the morning, I reach for it to check messages, sports results and news sites. If I have a down moment in the day, like a few seconds it takes for the lift to get from the ground floor to the office or a queue at the supermarket checkout, I will get out my phone. While previously I pick up a book to relax and switch off, I now see what's happening with friends on Facebook or check the news sites just in case something has happened. Normally it hasn't, and I can even find myself reading the comments below an article. How sad is that? When I'm out with my wife, we have got into the habit of both picking up our phones when we've finished eating an exhausted conversation and retreat into our own private worlds. When we get home, I'll watch YouTube videos and she'll have WhatsApp chats with her friends or whatever. I feel it's becoming a problem and wonder when it tips into an addiction. Already I find myself checking my phone many more times a day than previously. And if it's just a bad habit, how do I break it? Is it just willpower? So what are your thoughts on this one, William? (laughs) You know, when I read that, the first thing I thought is, my God, that could be me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be me too, to be perfectly honest. No, I've got a real problem with my phone, a real problem. Yeah, Like this fellow, I tell myself that it's always useful. It's a news. It's good being on top of the news. But there's literally pretty much, I'm not into sports or reading about it. I don't mind watching some. The World Cup is, I, I, I like to watch. But anything else on my phone that comes across on my phone, I'll probably, I'm, I just love it. There's nothing, social media, the whole lot fascinating. I've got millions of apps. I could, I could live my life on my phone. But you know, your podcast is about meaning. I trained as an existential therapist in part, which is all about meaning. And what I took away from this letter was that he could, like so many of us who have problems with our phones, there's a kind of element of disgust with ourselves. We're aware that we're not really doing 
what we should be doing to feel good. He asks, you know, is this addiction? The definition of addiction I like the most is the one where it's not about how much of something you do. It's just simply, is it problematic for you or the people in your life? And he's clearly saying that this is a problem in his life, and he's clearly struggling with it. So I would call it an addiction. So there's that. I'd start there and say, yes, you've got an addiction. And then I would put a happy tilt on it and say, look, you wouldn't be writing in expressing your, to use my word, not his, disgust with himself, his frustration with himself, his regret with himself, if he wasn't so disgusted and so close to change. So the bad news is, yes, he's an addict. The, the good news is he's ready to change. And the question is how well. Keep on focusing on the fact that you do want to change and then work out what is the best way for you in particular to change. And the thing about phones is most people have pretty much the same way of using them. The best thing you can do with a phone is put the damn thing away. If it's within arm's reach, if it's visually triggering you all the time, you're going to be in trouble. Put it in a drawer for an hour. Set rules. Don't take it for dinner. For me, when I go for a walk, I try to leave the phone at home. I try I try to make sure there are times where if I don't have the phone, it can't tempt me, right? So just don't take it with you. I am really fascinated by the idea of disgust with ourselves. And I think there's something really important in that. And somehow the phone distracts us from that disgust almost. So if we sat with the disgust or we ran with the disgust, what might we discover, do you think? Well, I think that the running and the sitting with the disgust is is addressing the disgust. I think that we would discover that the disgust leaves. Because disgust is really, for me, it's a it's an awareness I mean, it could be based on the past, you know, and that gets into the difference between shame and disgust and these different things. But if I'm disgusted with the way I'm living my life today, it's because there's a disconnect between my values and my ability to care for myself and my abandonment of myself. I am choosing to abandon myself, to constantly do things that I know don't help me to prosper and do just the opposite. And I also take down members of my family and my loved ones with me. So you just have to turn that around. Actually, possibly at the bottom of the disgust is that somehow you've abandoned yourself and your values. And maybe you need to get more in contact with those lost parts of yourself or those lost parts of your values that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, but but then we're in t- down to the deep heart of existential dilemma and existential angst, you know. What decisions can I make for myself? How will I know that the decision to do X, Y, or Z is the correct one? And for how long will it be correct? The reason we go to our phone over and over again is so that I don't have to challenge myself to find real meaning. This man that's written the letter he knows that he should be doing something else with his life. He could go off to Africa and build bridges. He could spend his spare time raising money for charity, whatever has meaning for him. Take up woodwork, take up running, whatever it is. Write that great book that he once wanted to try. Learn Japanese. Whatever it is, he could get involved in something. But the reason he doesn't is that it's been so long now since he's really cared for himself properly. Because all of us, it's very much a moving dial. None of us, it's very, very, there are moments where we're really looking after ourselves properly, completely in our lives are are, are few and far between. But for him, it's been quite some time. He's leaning on his phone. He's people who watch TV and box sets every night. They're leaning on those. They're not giving them the greatest experience that life has to offer them, but it's good enough. And it allows somebody else to take responsibility for them. The bit I'm trying to get to is that. It's it's kind of a loop because there's a horrible feeling that if I put down that phone and I switch off Netflix and I apply myself to this question, this existential question, what shall I do with my life? What really matters to me? What is realistic for me to do? What would I have the stamina to see through? What would I have to give up to do that thing? (laughs) 
how would I find the confidence to, f- I mean, that you could just keep on digging into it. And, and, you know, that's just full right there. Now, if I just carried on going with all these questions, you can, you can see how quickly you get to the point where you just go, you know what? That just sounds absolutely terrifying. And I just can't, there are too many questions. I can't do it. And then, you know, what's going to happen is I will have sat down. I will have tried to do it. And I will have discovered that I, I do not possess what it takes to find meaning in my own life. It's too much of a burden. And I would say, because I'm going to be a little bit more um, optimistic than you, but once you've actually reached this point, you could actually run with that, or you could go for a walk with it, or you could ask your dreams, or you could just give a bit of our famous silence and space and patience, and actually you will drop down another level and you will find something. I mean, when, when you were talking and you were saying, you know, you take up woodworking, I was thinking, oh, that sounds really rather interesting. And, you know, those sort of kind of little moments are things to investigate so that, you know, if it does sound interesting, woodworking, you know, you actually go into woodworking and see if that might actually be something. Absolutely. And what you discover is that the first time you go there and you, oh my God, I I don't have what it takes. And then you go back to your phone and and then you think, oh, let me give it another go. And and as you give it more and more goes, what you discover is it's not so much the woodworking itself or whatever it is that helps you find meaning in your life. It's that you yourself have changed and you've decided to let go of needing to have the correct answer. The fact that you're just happy to sand a piece of wood. I mean, what the hell is that? about, right? <laughs> How beautiful is that? I could just see the little shaving of yes. wood and it, I'm just thinking, wow, isn't that beautiful? Yes. Or just sharpen the blade on your plane, right? And then just that sound of, of using a plane, you know, to shave off those tiny bits of wood that, you know, listening to that, just working your way slowly through there. It's an inanimate object. It's a piece of wood. You're giving life to it. And it's that, that's where it's happening. You're giving life to yourself. You're permitting yourself to just be and to do. And it's that, that that's where the meaning comes from. It's not that woodwork has some amazing quality. It's what you're bringing to the woodwork. And that's what I would say for your fellow who's written this letter is put down the phone and just engage with whatever comes up. You put it very well. You said sit with it or run with it, see what happens. Just engage with it, with an idea that, you know, it may not be what you think. And I would say there's something about safety in here as well, that actually, you know, you say you've exhausted the conversation with your wife and you go off into your separate places, and that's safe. Actually dropping down to another level of intimacy might involve a bit of conflict as well. And we sort of want to avoid that, but we can't get down to the greater intimacy and the greater togetherness and the greater connection without actually getting out of our safety zone. And I wonder if you are frightened of where that conversation might go if you actually didn't pick up your phones, Mm. you didn't go into your separate places, what would that be like? Indeed. I mean, I I was saying that the avoidance, and I agree with you, I think the phone is all about avoidance, that the avoidance was about him avoiding his responsibilities to himself. But you're right, there may be another piece he needs to look at, which is where he's trying to avoid the responsibilities of his relationship with his wife. He does say in that letter that he takes care to say that they only look at their phone at dinner once they've finished talking. You know, they have a nice chat first. So I think what he's trying to say there is, you know, I I, I do try to do the right things by my wife and we do try to take care of each other. But yeah, in the end, it's an existential hell, isn't it? Because no matter how much care you take with your loved ones, there's always going to be that itch. There's always going to be that feeling, you know, what what are we really doing here? Do you really see me? Do I really see you? Have I told you everything I could tell you about how I love you? Or, or do you really know me? You know, there's just... Or are we just drifting along here? How will I know if I'm drifting? How will I know if you're just not coasting along here? You And you want to say to the person, look, you know, if you're coasting, don't coast with me. 
don't feel like you need to coast with me. I'm okay. I'm willing to be here fully. <laughs> Who says that to their partner? <laughs> Maybe they should. Maybe yes. tonight, after listening to this podcast, you will drop down to another level of intimacy or hell with your partner. Yeah. Wow. So, as your witness on The Meaningful Life, I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? So, I would say relationships, definitely, particularly work and romantic. And then the second one would be work. I think purpose is everything. Meaning is purpose. Purpose is meaning. And then thirdly, I would say that giving care to people. I just get such a kick out of looking after people in some way or I don't know. I mean, I, I even, when I go and order like a burger or something somewhere and they give me some paper napkins, if they've given me seven of them or something, I'll take six of them home. <laughs> but I enjoy, I enjoy not wasting that paper. I feel like I'm taking care of a tree somehow. It's stupid really, right? And it probably makes no difference to anything, but whether it's something like that or, or my partner, whatever it may be, just taking care. But it seems like you are getting meaning in the moment rather than from the big project of building a bridge sort of kind of thing. It's actually in the moment when uh, you take those napkins home, almost. Those little tiny things are actually the key into something meaningful. Am yeah. I hearing that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't care about the big picture. I, I think deal with the small stuff in the here and now because it doesn't you know there's no point in dying the richest man in the cemetery right it doesn't matter where the big picture is you know will i live to 80 will i have a big house will people remember me etc by the time you get there <laughs> you, you know you're not it'll be too late so just worry right now about what your life looks like that's that's what i think so use the one napkin and take the six home with you or your equivalent of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not taking them home because they're free. I'm taking them home because if I leave them there, they'll throw them out. They'll go to waste. I'm taking them home because if I care about something as silly and small about that as that, then I'll care about everything else and I won't be on autopilot. Yeah, and I think that is one of the most interesting answers I've had to this question in a long time. So well, thank, thank you. you for that. Now, this is where the conversation ends for most people, but if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, the conversation continues. I was very interested in the idea of running to get a better relationship with your anger. So we're going to be talking specifically about anger in a moment. If you'd like to join us in that conversation and become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, let me give you some of the details. You can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.